The following message is brought to you by the CD ministry of Rancho Baptist Church. This message by Pastor Matt Shia was recorded during our regular morning worship service. Pastor Matt is the senior pastor here at Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. Well, a very happy August 17th, 2008 to you all. And while Pastor Matt is on vacation, our discipleship pastor, Lou Dawson, will be talking about personal purity by the grace of God. Today's text is Titus chapter 2, and Lou is looking at verses 11 through 14. Let's join Pastor Lou as he talks to us about purity. Well, Pastor Matt is uh, taking a well-deserved vacation and enjoying the end of it here. So be in prayer for him that he would be uh, refreshed and, and uh, ready to come back. Well, this morning I want to talk about the, the subject of personal purity by grace, and Personal purity is really in very short supply today, and I don't really have to tell any of you who've lived out in this world very long that there isn't a whole lot of personal purity out there. And sadly, probably isn't news to you either that a lot of those who profess Christ are frequently little different in their personal purity than those who live, live in the world. Based on a survey conducted in 1997, George Barna took a sampling of, uh, here's a sampling of statements where there was little difference in the percentages of agree and disagree responses between self-described born-again Christians and non-Christians. Three statements. Statement number one, people are basically good. Same percentage of professed born-again non-Christians, born-again Christians agreed with that versus the non-Christians, believe it or not. Second statement, when it comes to morals and ethics, right and wrong, there are no absolute standards that apply to everyone in all situations. When it comes right down to it, your first responsibility is to yourself. Well, small wonder why there really is a shortage of personal purity in our world today. But this is really not how our Lord would have us live. The scripture is very clear in its exhortation. Uh, Peter says this, he says, Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all of your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And Jesus himself said this, he said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And that's why the leadership of Rancho Baptist Church has made the number one strategic prayer request for this year to pray for God to bring about personal purity and focus in our lives. And the church back in the Apostle Paul's day, well, guess what? Wasn't a whole lot different. Uh, that's why Paul brought up personal purity. In nearly every letter that he wrote, he in some way brought up the concept of personal purity to the people he was writing to. And this morning we're going to look at uh, Paul's exhortation to Titus in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And the title of this morning's sermon is Personal Purity by Grace. But before we dive into this passage, it's important that you understand the background of this letter that Paul wrote to Titus. Now, Titus was a Greek who was probably converted during Paul's ministry in, in that particular area. And Titus actually ended up becoming one of Paul's traveling companions when he went on his missionary journeys. And later, Paul sent him to the island of Crete to pastor and provide leadership to the churches that were established there on that island. 
And this letter is written by Paul to give instructions to this young pastor on how to minister to the Cretans. And Titus was dealing with a lot of issues. He had a lot of false teachers that were saying one thing, but their lives were rebellious, they were lazy, they were disobedient to the Lord. And their walk just didn't match their talk at all. And in Titus verse chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul gives directions to Titus about the level of pure conduct that he should insist on from his flock. And then in verses 11 through 14, which we're going to look at today, Paul enlightens Titus as to why he should insist on such conduct. And in these verses, Paul explains the motivation for personal purity. And in looking at these verses, we're seeking to understand and apply these same motivations to our own lives. Now turn with me to Titus chapter 2, and let's begin reading together at verse 11, where Paul comments, For the grace of God has appeared. And let's stop right there. Now in this little segment of this verse we see that the motivation for personal purity is the grace of God manifested in Jesus Christ. Now, notice the first word in this verse. It's the word for. In other words, Paul is telling Titus, he's saying, Hey, look, Titus, here's the reason why your flock should live pure lives like I just described in verses 1 through 10. And what is that reason? It's the grace of God. Now, before we go any further, I want to ask all of you, that word grace. Now, what is, what is grace? What is it? Unmerited. Unmerited favor. There's a good textbook definition right there. It means God giving us something that we do not, that we do not deserve at all. And in this verse, Paul tells us that the grace of God has appeared You see, the manifestation of God's grace was a person. And that person was Jesus Christ. And the Apostle John reinforces this in John chapter 1, verse 14, where he asserts that the Word, who is Jesus, became flesh and He dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And the grace of God in the person of Christ came and he actually lived among us. And what an undeserved gift that was. Because as God incarnate, he allowed us to see what God was really like. And what we saw in Jesus was was a truly holy and righteous God-man. And one who, for some reason, he loved us dearly. And later on in this letter to Titus, Paul makes this comment. He says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared. You see, Jesus was not only the manifestation of God's grace, but also the manifestation of God's great kindness and love toward us. Why was Jesus the manifestation of of God's grace, look with me at the second half of verse 11, where Paul elaborates on the result of this grace. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. 
You see, in the second part of verse 11, we see that the grace of God in Christ has brought salvation to all men. Now, in light of what you and I like, were like, certainly salvation was a supreme act of grace, an undeserved gift. Notice, first of all, that Christ brought salvation to all men. Now, is Paul saying that all men will be saved? No, no, he's not. Because in every other letter that we see, Paul says, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. And if you refuse to put your faith in in Christ, you will not be saved. So what does Paul mean? I believe that he means that Christ has made salvation available to all. And at the same time, though salvation is available to all, only men and women who will be saved are those who put their grace alone in Christ, their faith alone in Christ alone. Now moving on, later in this passage, in verse 14, we're going to skip a couple verses here, Paul gives us a much fuller picture of the enormity of Christ's grace when he comments that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Now, let's, let's unpack this verse together. First, notice that Jesus' grace was such that he gave himself for us. You see, Jesus was not some hapless victim of a conspiracy to kill him. It's apparent throughout all the different gospel accounts that Jesus knew exactly what was coming down the pike. He knew that he was heading towards execution and suffering for sin, and that he was marching into the jaws of death. And even as he was being arrested, Jesus told his disciples, he said, look, at any time I could call and the Father would send 36,000 angels just like that and deal with that. But did he? No, he did not. His grace was such that he gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Now second, notice that Jesus' grace was such that he gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. Now Paul very deliberately picked this word, this word redeem. Now the word in the original language means to set free by paying a ransom. You see, Jesus rescued us. We had sold ourselves into slavery to sin and to the devil. In Romans chapter 6, verse 16, Paul writes this. He says, Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or obedience resulting in righteousness. And guess what? This was us. We had presented ourselves as slaves to sin. We lived to commit lawless deeds. We had absolutely no desire to obey God's moral law. We lived to please ourselves, not God. And if it felt good, boy, we sure did it. Paul summarizes our condition very well in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 where he says, you were dead, you were a corpse, and your trespasses in sin, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Because of the gravity of our sin, 
there was a price on our heads. We were doomed to pay the death penalty for the wages of our sin is death. We were doomed to an eternity of suffering away from the presence of God. This is what Jesus redeemed us from. The grace, the tremendous undeserved gift that he gave us was to pay the death penalty by dying on the cross in our place. He paid the price we deserve to pay. Now third, notice that Jesus' grace was such that he not only paid the price for our wretched souls, but he did this to purify for himself a people for his own possession. You see, Jesus redeemed us because he desired that we would live forever in his presence, enjoying him. In fact, in the book of Revelation, the picture that unfolds towards the end of the book is that we as the church are pure and holy. We're his bride. That's us. We're his bride. And we will someday stand in Jesus' presence full of unspeakable joy as his beloved treasure, enjoying fellowship with him and he with us for all of eternity. And the song that we sang in worship this morning puts it so well, so well. It says this, it says, How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. You see, this is the, the measure of the vastness of God's grace and his love toward us in Christ. And if this doesn't motivate you to obey him and me too, I don't know what will. Recently, we had a college retreat, and I want to share a testimony of how the grace and love of Christ has changed the life of one of our college students, Charlotte Knable. You had a really good time up with the Lord here a, a week or so ago. Tell, tell us about that, uh, that time with the Lord. Um, we had a section on praise to read through, like you gave us a bit of scriptures, and one of the scriptures we were reading was um, Isaiah 52 and 53, and it's just kind of prophesizing about what Christ will endure and when he get, you know, goes to the cross. And um, one of the verses I read was, um, his body will be um, disfigured beyond that of any man. And I just kept rereading it, and it began to hit me, and I just felt like weeping, and all of a sudden I think the gravity of, of the cross and what Jesus did for me and how much he loves me really hit me. And it took a while to process, because I've been a Christian for 15, 16 years, and I thought I knew that Jesus loved me. Like, I knew it, and I sang the songs and everything, but... For the first time, I really felt dearly loved by Jesus because I realized that was my Jesus, my best friend, you know, the love of my life that was disfigured, that was, you know, brutalized and hung on a cross. And I think it just, it really, really hit me. And I just suddenly felt so, so loved. And I didn't feel guilty like I had in the past or, or terrible. I understood that it was my sin that put him there. But I also finally understood that he wanted to die for me because he loved me so much. And it was just super exciting because I got, I was just like, oh my gosh, he just loves me. And I couldn't stop smiling and it was, <laughs> it was awesome. So what, what effect has that had on your life, uh, you know, practically since then? Um, I think it has changed my perspective on life in just a lot of ways. Um, I think that I still was trying to earn God's love in a lot of ways. 
and I can rest in his love a lot easier. I feel a lot more at peace about things because um, I know he doesn't want me to sin, but I don't feel this overwhelming shame or guilt. I'm just like, no, he loves me and he wants to bring me back into his arms and, and he wants his daughter to crawl up on his lap and sit with him and, and talk with him and I have a bigger desire to spend time with him. I, you know, I'll go and spend an hour and I'll have to leave and it won't be enough. I'll want to keep spending more, which is super exciting and um, it's encouraged me to love others with his love and stop trying to make it come out of me because I don't have enough love for everyone, but I want it to like overflow and I can feel that, so... I don't know if that makes sense, but that's kind of how it's affected me right, lately. Wow. <laughs> you see, that's how comprehending the vast love and grace of Christ motivates us to obedience to Him and personal purity. You see, meditation on our salvation purchased at the cross promotes personal purity. I'm convinced that over time our lives would change dramatically if we daily spent time meditating on all that is revealed of God and man at the cross. You see, we would begin to fully understand the, the perfect holiness of God. We would begin to understand His hatred of sin, His wrath, in His perfect justice. And we would also come to fully grasp His immeasurable love for us and His grace and His mercy. And at the same time, we would come to grips with the depths of our own depravity. And we would grieve over our sin. In my own life, I've begun to make this a daily practice, meditating on all the different aspects of God and myself that are revealed at the cross. And I've seen my own desire to lovingly obey Him to increase. And I've also seen my hatred for God, for sin really begin to increase also. And realize that when we as Christians deliberately choose to rebel against the Lord, we are almost spitting on that incredible grace. It's truly a blasphemy of monstrous proportions to understand the enormity of God's love and His grace towards us and still choose to live in sin. And today, if you're living in conscious rebellion against the Lord, Please stop. It's realize the bombastic insult that this is to His grace and His love for us and stop, repent. And maybe you're here this morning and for the first time you're understanding the seriousness of your own sin and yet at the same time the vastness of God's love and grace for you. And if this is the case, come talk to me. Today is the day you need to put your faith in Christ and receive His gracious gift of eternal life. So we've looked at the grace of God and salvation as a motivation for personal purity in verses 11 and 14. Now let's look at how the grace of God 
in Christ teaches us how to live lives of personal purity in verse 12. In this verse, Paul says that the grace of God, it instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Now, first of all, notice that God's grace in Christ instructs us. It teaches us to say no to two different things. Now, the first no is toward ungodliness. Now, what is the God and ungodliness that Paul is speaking about here? It's a lifestyle of irreverence for God that is displayed through our speech and our behavior. Ungodliness is when we live as if God has no part in our lives, and it's really rooted in, true, in a lack of true reverence and devotion to God. You see, though personal purity is not the basis of salvation, and make no mistake about that, growing in personal obedience and personal purity is really not optional in the Christian life. The vastness of God's love and his grace to us in Christ makes the notion of being saved without a commitment to growing in personal purity just unthinkable. That's really the only word I can think of at this point. And the Apostle Peter reinforces this notion, commenting, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds we're healed. And in fact, if a person professes faith in Christ, but consistently and consciously lives in rebellion against the Lord, that person should rightfully question whether they're even saved. The Apostle John infers this in 1 John 2, verse 4. He says this, he says, The one who says, I, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But not only does God's grace teach us to say no to ungodliness, at the same time it also empowers us to say no to ungodliness. And the writer of Hebrews makes this comment about responding to the temptation to ungodliness that we all experience. He says this, he says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, in light of this, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. You see, when we're tempted to say yes to ungodliness, we must draw near to our Lord so that we may receive grace to say no to it. And we're promised grace to help in that time of need when we draw near to the Lord and when we stay near to the Lord. Now the second no that God's grace teaches us is to say no to worldly desires. Now, when Paul refers to worldly desires here, I want to ask you guys, what do you think he means when he says worldly desires? What do you think? Money, money, riches, lots of things, okay? Those are worldly desires. Any other things? What's that? 
Fame, being the big man. Okay, that too, that's another one. Fame, any other ones you can think of? Possessions, and that kind of falls generally in that category of money because it's things, it's accumulation of things, yes. Anything else? Fleshly lusts, yes, and that's, that's an even broader term for what all these, all these things are. And I think that most of the worldly desires that, that the world lives for kind of boil down into one of two categories. And you've hit, I think you've hit at least definitely one of those categories. And that first is the desire for affluence, the desire to be rich, the desire to accumulate all sorts of things he who's got the most toys when he dies wins, you know, that kind of thing. Yet the scripture teaches that those who desire to be rich Christians in this life, they get themselves in all kinds of trouble. That's in 1 Timothy 6. Now the second worldly desire that we see so much of is the desire for comfort, the desire for personal peace. And the world longs for a comfortable life. And yet we... As Christians, what are we called to? We are called to suffer hardship as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. And these worldly desires, they can, they can influence even the most solid Christian without them realizing it. And subtly influence us, and we can find ourselves, before we know it, living just like the world does, if we're not careful. And for this reason, we must be very alert to the influence of worldly desires in our own lives. We have to be very vigilant. But God's grace in Christ not only instructs us what to say no to, it also instructs us what to say yes to. And that is to say yes to living sensibly, righteously and godly in the present life. And that's at the end of verse 12. Now the word sensibly, it's only used once in the scripture, and that's right here. And it has the idea behind it of living wisely, especially in the use of our time, our money, and our talents. I remember a number of years back when my son was young, he was asked to play on a year-around traveling club soccer team. And before long, he was practicing three, four, five days a week. And every other weekend, all year long, we were traveling to tournaments that went all weekend all over the state of California and even sometimes out of state. And we were quite frequently missing worship and fellowship with God's people on Sunday morning. We had inadvertently ended up not living sensibly not wisely investing our time, and it was my fault. You see, living sensibly means that we carefully consider how and where we invest our time, our money, and our talents. It means that we think before we commit to things. And it means that we consider all of our decisions in light of two things. First, is it right or wrong or neither? Because there are those things too. But secondly, is what I'm considering doing or committing myself to, is it wise according to what God's standards are? You know, if we're going to live sensibly, 
We must always consider both of these issues in our decision-making. You know, there's so many activities in life that are not right or wrong, but they're not wise either. And in order to live sensibly, we must avoid these entanglements and these activities and commitments that are not wise. But God's grace in Christ also demands that we live righteously. We must live correctly. We must live uprightly. We must understand how the Lord wants us to live by keeping our nose buried in that book you got in your lap right there. And by appropriating His grace to live in obedience to it. The standard of righteousness that we should be seeking is to uphold is to be above reproach, which is the primary qualification of an elder that's talked about in Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now, what does it mean to be above reproach? It means that if the line between right and wrong is right here, then to be above reproach means we go as far away from that line as we can possibly get. We run from that line. You know, and so many Christians, they, they try and, here's the line, and they, they try and snuggle right up next to it, get as close as they can without crossing over it. But see, that, that's not what it means to live righteously. Living righteously means we seek deliberately to be above reproach. And I would challenge me and you to adopt that as your standard for living. And God's grace in Christ also demands that we live godly. And this word has the idea of pure actions that arise out of attitudes and thoughts that are like the Lord's. And the emphasis here is on close fellowship with the Lord, which changes us on the inside. You see, these interchanges, when they begin to occur, they will naturally work their way out into our lives and into our behavior. And apart from a daily abiding in God's presence, you and I really can't live godly in this present age. We must take out the time each day to draw near to the Lord and to listen to Him as He speaks through God's Word. And we must talk to Him all day long about all the things that come across our paths. The scripture refers to this as praying without ceasing. So we've looked at how God's grace in Christ motivates us to personal purity and how it teaches us how to live out personal purity. Lastly, let's look how the grace of God in Christ compels us to anticipate his return. Notice in verse 13 that Paul is continuing to share about the effects of the grace of God, commenting that it causes us to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I don't think it's an accident that he talks about this after the instructions of verse 12. You see, understanding the vast grace of God in Christ and right living animate our desire to see our Lord. That's what it does. Now, when Paul is talking about the appearing of Christ here, I think he's likely referring to the second coming of Christ as opposed to the rapture. At the rapture of the church, Jesus will not appear on the earth. We will meet him in the air. But at the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation, 
He will appear on this earth in glory, and every single person will see him. Now, notice that Paul calls this appearing of Christ our blessed hope. And I want to ask all of you guys, why would the appearing of Christ be our blessed hope? Why would it be that? If we're done, well, we're not quite done here. Yeah, almost done. That's right. It's the fulfillment of everything he's promised. Exactly, yes. What? Delivered from what? Yeah. And actually, we will actually be, have been completely delivered from sin. Yes. There you go. That's right. That's right. Other things. What? Other things? Why is this the blessed hope? Oh, yeah. We'll get to stand there right with him. There's so many things why this will be the blessed hope. Jesus will come to this earth and he will be reigning over all of creation. And guess what? We're going to be standing right there with him. The earth will be largely restored to its pre-curse, uh, its pre-curse condition. All injustice will cease. We will rule with Christ. And we will have been entirely restored to perfection, living forever in perfect bodies with Jesus. And Jesus will be affirmed for who He truly is. Look at that at the end of that verse there. He is our great God and Savior. Make no mistake, He is indeed God. And I don't know about you, but my heart cries, Bring it on, Lord! Bring it on! Come back! We want to see you and be with you. How about you? Do you long for the return of Christ? I hope you do. You see, when we truly grasp the magnitude of the grace of Christ, when we bask in it, when we glory in it, we will long for Christ's return. And we will know that his, know his glorious presence and we will find the ultimate joy knowable when He returns. And here on this earth, we will long to be like Him. The Apostle John comprehended the reality of really all that we've talked about this morning very well. And like Paul, he understood and gloried in the grace of God in Christ. And he sought to live a life of personal purity as a result. And in closing, I I want to sum it up with something that John said. He said this. He said, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God and such we are we're his children beloved now we are children of God and is not appeared as yet what we shall be but we know that when he appears we will be like him because we will see him just as he is and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure let's pray Lord, we stand in, in awe of your magnificent grace given to us in the death of Christ on the cross. 
What a stunning salvation you have lovingly bestowed on wretches like us. How could we not abandon our lives in obedience to you, Lord? Cause us to come to our senses and do just that. And cause us also to long for your appearing, Lord. Bring about personal purity in our hearts. As we bask in your grace revealed in Jesus and long for his appearing. Jesus' name. Hey, if you've been blessed in any way by today's broadcast, we'd love to hear from you. Why don't you drop us a line at www.ranchobaptistchurch.org and you can email any one of the staff members that are there. Or you can even call us at area code 951-676-2911. We just pray that you've been touched today and we pray that God blesses you in your walk with Him. Have a great day in the Lord.